Hi there, you're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Professor Matthew Grimes. Professor Grimes is a professor of entrepreneurship and sustainable futures at Judge Business School, University of Cambridge. Professor Grimes examines how individuals and organizations create, introduce, and sustain positive social change through entrepreneurship. He's a member of the Organizational Theory and Information Systems Subject Group at Cambridge Judge Business School, academic co-director of the Cambridge Judge Entrepreneurship Centre, and current associate editor at the Academy of Management Journal. Our conversation is entirely focused on social entrepreneurship, and I asked Professor Grimes midway through the interview whether social entrepreneurship can be summarized as people using a business as a tool to create social good, and his answer is fascinating. So I leave you with that insight to enjoy this conversation with Professor Matthew Grimes. Professor Grimes, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, delighted to be on. Thanks for having me, Ian. So I'm really interested about the concept of social entrepreneurship. So could we start by defining what is meant by social entrepreneurship and how it differs from a traditional view of entrepreneurship? Yeah, so um, I mean, I I define it pretty broadly as commercial market-based methods for solving social and environmental problems. Um, and so in that sense, uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's quite a bit of overlap, I think, between that concept and what we might consider to be traditional entrepreneurship. So I think in some ways we can, we can oftentimes make more of this distinction than we need to. Um, because I think, you know, uh, entrepreneurs in general are clearly trying to create value, right? Not just capture market value or extract value from, from the economy. Um, and, and so I think in that sense, there's quite a bit of overlap between both the concept of, you know, quote unquote, traditional entrepreneurship and what we might consider to be social entrepreneurship. That said, you know, over the last, I think, 15 years or so in, in the academic field. And, and also I think in practice, there's been a lot of conversation about, the need to kind of carve out a separate space for entrepreneurs who are specifically trying to, um, you know, use commercial market-based methods to solve social and environmental problems. And, you know, and so as you, you start to dig into some of these distinctions, you start to see, okay, well, there's, you know, to some extent there, there are identity related differences. Uh, So if you, if you speak to social entrepreneurs, they will, they will tell you that they are different from traditional entrepreneurs. They'll, they'll claim those differences and talk about the, you know, for example, the, the distinctive motivations that they might have for pursuing what they're doing. Um, whereas entrepreneurs may indeed have a lot of passion for what they're, what they're pursuing. Social entrepreneurs will, will in some ways claim that compassion actually underlies a lot of what they're pursuing. And, um, and, and, and then in, in addition, I think there's, it's not just those motivational differences, but the ways in which 
um, they orient their strategies and their measurement approaches. So for instance, you know, the, uh, there's, there are a few different terms we like to use in the field, you know, uh, double bottom line, triple bottom line, people planted in profits. Um, this idea that, um, social entrepreneurs are thinking about a, a broader set of metrics and outcomes that they're looking to deliver against and optimize on. Um, and, you know, but, but, you know, coming back to whether or not these distinctions are, are really material or not. I mean, in some ways, in some ways, I think the distinctions, the differences between social and commercial or traditional entrepreneurship, um, have been useful and I think mobilizing the field, right? They've, they've been a way to open up space within the economy, within the polity, within society to, uh, you know, you know, start to ask bigger questions about the purpose of business. Um, and, and even start to raise questions, not just, you know, whether there needs to be this kind of separate space for social entrepreneurs, but, but what is the per- what is the purpose of business more generally? And you know, shouldn't shouldn't all organizations in some ways care about a double bottom line? Shouldn't all entrepreneurs in some ways be focused on optimizing on these these multiple outcomes? Um, and but you know, at the same time, I mean, when you when you look at what is it that we actually care about in terms of these differences, and I think. I think there you start to get back, you know, from a pragmatic perspective, you say, well, we care about the impact that these entrepreneurs are having. And in some ways, traditional entrepreneurs can can have massive impacts socially and environmentally, both positive and negative. And the same is true for social entrepreneurs. Social entrepreneurs are not, the, the, you know, they, they certainly have the, the capacity to affect society and the environment in both positive and negative ways. And so um, I, I think that's that's what we ultimately care about here is how is it that entrepreneurs are creating these multiple kinds of impacts in the world around them? And if if that requires carving out a separate space for, you know, to mobilize these kinds of, you know, social entrepreneurs, great. But at the same time, I think there's a bigger question that this all raises, which is, shouldn't all entrepreneurs in some ways be be thinking about these multiple forms of impact? And where's the idea of social entrepreneurship come from? In my, in my experience, this is a relatively new label of a form of entrepreneurship. I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a good question. And um, uh, I, I guess if... You know, if if we have a few minutes, I might actually uh, t- take us back a little bit historically um, to to think about the the nature of organizations and the ways that they've sort of managed these kinds of multiple forms of impact. So, I mean, if you think about, for instance, prior to the the twentieth century, we had there were a few different kinds of organizations that existed. Right, there was the state, the church, and you know voluntary associations really. And at that point in time, there was, um, you know, all of these organizations were, were ultimately trying to manage not just their financial mission, but also a, a social mission. And, um, with the rise of 
industrialization and shareholder capitalism in the 20th century, organizations essentially started becoming increasingly seen as commodities, right, within the financial markets. And so in that way, you know, a social mission matters less than, you know, the organization's returns. Um, And so social mission was also in some ways seen as potentially in conflict with the need to kind of optimize on those financial returns. And, um, and you can see this, for instance, I mean, uh, even early in the 20th century, like uh, Henry Ford and, uh, you know, founder of Ford Motor Companies was tried to uh, increase employee wages and provide health insurance to employees. And shareholders were pushing back against um, some of this because they saw it as ultimately a trade-off between uh you know, the, these kinds of social impacts and the ultimate financial returns of the, of the company. And, um, this kind of tension continued to grow throughout the 20th century in mid 20th century around 1953, I think it was. So there in the U S they, they introduced, uh, what is now known as the 501 C three legislation, which kind of carved out the nonprofit sector, from the for-profit sector. So you have essentially this kind of sectoral divide where for-profits could essentially try to optimize on, you know, remunerations to shareholders and the nonprofit sector could optimize on providing benefits to its beneficiaries. And, um, but even, even with that sort of sectoral division, you still started to see increasing tensions, right? So in the 1970s, for example, that a lot of corporations were adopting, you know, what they called corporate social responsibility, because they started to see, you know, actually, we we do have these kinds of demands being placed on us from a variety of stakeholders to engage in more than just maximizing remunerations. But you also had, you know, economists like Milton Friedman um, and, you know, uh, sort of out of the Austrian economics camp that were claiming, I mean, so Milton Friedman penned an editorial in the New York Times that was, you know, the social responsibility of business is to actually increase its profits, right? Um, so that is its social responsibility, you know, that that's it. And, um, and to the extent that it engages in more, that's, you know, a... Uh, this is um, this undermines its ultimate social responsibility, and so in the 1980s, you see kind of actually an explosion of nonprofits during the Reagan and Thatcher era, and um, so so again you have you know growth in both sectors, but still increasing tensions within those, and so you know late in the 90s. There, there starts to be this growing conversation using the term social entrepreneurship. So, I mean, if you, you know, you could do a Google Ingram, Ingram search and you can see the kind of the usage of these of this word starts to creep way up in the late 90s and into the 2000s. And, and, and this was being driven by a, a few different organizations, um, including elite universities. So, Harvard, Oxford, Stanford, all, all started uh, building out programs around this concept of social entrepreneurship. Ashoka, um, a, a large organization in this space uh, based in Washington, D.C., that funds social, social innovators and social entrepreneurs. 
um, a gentleman named Bill Drayton, who founded Ashoka, was was you know uh, pushing forward this kind of concept um, quite vigorously. Um, and so uh, you know, and then you also have Muhammad Yunus, uh, who uh, founded you know the founder of the Grameen Bank, uh, which which was you know, uh, spearheading a lot of the microfinance movement that started also embracing this concept of social entrepreneurship. He wins the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. And so there's a lot of kind of, there's a, ca- a catalyzing energy around this concept um, that has, that I think has given given way to even more growth. So, you know, for instance, since since this this kind of kind of explosion of interest in the concept, you've seen sort of a spread of this idea. So for example, there's an organization called B lab, which is based out, uh, based out of, the, out of the United States that has, uh, you know, built a variety of different interventions from the, the, the B Corp certification that many of your listeners might have, might have heard of to benefit corporation legislation to uh, the B impact assessment as a way to, you know, evaluate the, the, the various kinds of impacts within organizations. Um, this has also given rise to impact investing as a as a, a large movement within the financial services sector. Um, new legislation has come out. So in the UK, the what are, what are called the KICs or the Community Interest Corporations. Um, in the US, the L3Cs and, and benefit corporations. Uh, in the UK, there's also now uh, growth around uh, what's called the Better Business Act. Um, you know, trying to push again to to, to mobilize uh, uh, not just not just carving out this sectoral space for social entrepreneurs, but ultimately to say all businesses should be engaged. I think in in sort of managing these these multiple bottom lines. Um, but you've also seen you've also seen some pushback here as well. So, for instance, like uh, Anand Giridharadas, um, he he wrote this book called the, "The Elite Charade of Changing the World," which is it's a fascinating book, and I think it's also um, you know it it has been a point of conversation in in Davos and Aspen and all these places where a lot of you know these elites who are trying to change the world are are gathering on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, the concept of social entrepreneurship has been part of those conversations. And so, um, you know, there, there's been a, a degree of backlash to say, is this really, is this, you know, is this movement around social entrepreneurship, is it really creating pragmatically the impacts that we are, we're looking to see, or is it just propping up Again, once again, sort of the the inequalities that we see in the world, and um, you know, and ultimately acting as some kind of charade. So, you know, that's a bit of the the historical background. So, I think there's been a, a long history of organizations wrestling with this this sort of need to think about the financial and the social in combination. And social entrepreneurship is one of the latest ways that we're trying to capture this phenomenon and, be, and, and, and try to mobilize energy around organizations that are doing both simultaneously. Um, so I hope that's, hope that's helpful. It is very helpful. Now, is it, when I think about these different things and in big corporations now, so I'm moving beyond entrepreneurship to big corporations or to any kind of existing company, particularly those that are 
listed on stock markets, there's lots of pressure to showcase their ESG sustainability, corporate sustainability, oh, sorry, corporate social responsibility kind of strategies. Yeah. Getting a B Corp label is also very helpful. Getting a MSCI AAA rating is a very helpful thing to do as well. You know, there's lots of these different things that are going on that are pushing organizations to behave more like, I think, your description of a social business, a social entrepreneur-based business. So is it a logical conclusion that in the end, given all of the various forces that are going around in the world at the moment, whether it be climate change or inequality and so on and so forth, that all organizations will adopt the same types of behaviors and the distinction between social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship will no longer kind of exist? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really interesting question. And there's, there's quite a bit of debate on this, um, both, I think, at, you know, within within the academy and within the polity. So, um, you know, should should all organizations essentially be social entrepreneurs, right? That that it's an interesting question. And I, I think that there are, there are, are reasons to expect expect some degree of convergence here in the sense that um, I think I think many companies are are indeed realizing that their their financial interests are deeply intertwined with societal interests and and that to the extent that they try to separate those out um, there, there can be long-term implications. So to the extent that companies are faced, you know, are, are focused exclusively on short-term uh, profits or short-term returns, there uh, it, it's, it's a little bit easier to, to make the distinction, but then over the longer term, it becomes, it becomes harder to do so. And, and I think you, you're starting to see even technologists and engineers, um, you know, uh, let's, let's think about open AI as an example of this, uh, you know, a contemporary, a good a contemporary example of, of a company that is, that is thinking about um, the long-term implications of the technology that it's developing, both in terms of the societal benefits that it can bring and also the the societal harms that it could raise, and and trying to uh, think about governance and think about mission um, in ways that I think are are quite similar to what we have observed, for instance, in in the kind of conversations around social entrepreneurship that we've been having over the last fifteen years. And so, um, I think to the extent that that organizations adopt that longer term thinking, there's reasons to expect a degree of convergence. On the other hand, you know, there's a, that raises another question, which is, is that, is that desirable? Is that ultimately what we want? Do we want all organizations to look the same in terms of their governance and their, their behaviors? And, you know, there I'm a little bit, uh, I, I, you know, it's an empirical question, but I, but I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical because I, I think that variation and diversity in, in systems is typically a good thing. 
I mean, when you look at ecosystems, biological ecosystems, social, social systems, economic systems, diversity generally outperforms homogeneity. And, and so to the extent that we see organizations looking more and more similar, I think that this can raise, uh, raise additional risks around the resilience of the overall system. And so I, um, on the one hand, I'm a, I'm a champion of the, the sort of social entrepreneurship kind of approach, but at the other, on the other hand, I, I, I want to acknowledge that, that homogeneity in organizational forms may actually not be what we want to see in the future. It seems to me that, and tell me if I'm oversimplifying this, is that if it's a pure social entrepreneurship-based venture, it's like the person that is creating that organization is using the business as a tool to solve a bigger problem that's non-financial. And a byproduct of that is that they generate some cash and they can choose to reinvest that cash and make it a nonprofit or keep that cash to do whatever they need to do for the for the companies that support it. Is that a is that am I being too simplistic in the way that I'm describing that? So that uh, that social entrepreneurs see see their organizations as a tool for for generating the, these kinds of social returns and in, environmental impacts. Yes, although I mean, I think if you, I, I think in theory that's true. I think in practice, if you were to talk to a social entrepreneur, they there, there's still a degree to which they are treating those organizations as an end in and of themselves. Um, in other words, like I think all entrepreneurs get get wrapped up in in building something and, and in the organization itself and their, their identities become connected to those, those ventures. And so, you know, the, the question of like, um, you know, I, I had a professor once talk about, um, you know, that, that organization, that social entrepreneurs should be in the business of putting themselves out of business, right. That, that you should, if, if your ultimate goal is to solve these social problems, that, you, you, the business should go away after it solves those problems. Obviously, that's not what happens, right? I mean, these organizations ex- expand their prerogatives, right? They, they, they look for growth. They, and so I think um, the, yeah, I mean, so it's it's true. I mean, the the, the, the these business is a vehicle, for, but 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 I th- also think that that's true for entrepreneurs as well, right? I mean, these businesses are a means to creating value in the world. They're also a means for maximizing shareholder wealth. Um, so the, the, these, these organizations are instruments, um, but, but at the same time, they also in some ways become ins in and of themselves, right? Where they, they uh, are deeply connected to the identities of, of the founders. Do you have any great examples of companies that are founded on the basis of you know, by a social entrepreneur that you can share with us just to bring it to life a little bit? Yeah. I mean, um, so there's, there's several good examples. I mean, um, I, I think probably most listeners would be familiar with Muhammad Yunus and Grameen Bank. So I, I'll, I'll maybe skip that one because I think that that's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like overly used. But but it's a it's an interesting one because the, uh, we can look at it as a foundation for another 
a similar venture, which was built on top of Grameen Bank. So Iqbal Qadir um, was an entrepreneur in, in Bangladesh that actually founded Grameen Phone on top of Grameen Bank, um, which was Muhammad Yunus's microfinance venture. And um, so, you know, some of your listeners might not be familiar with Grameen Phone, but it's it's a it's a very interesting story of social entrepreneurship. Um, you know, of how technology can be harnessed to empower communities, especially in rural areas. And so, um, you know, so Grameen Bank, of course, was transformed microfinance by giving small loans to the poor without needing collateral, right? Um, and it wasn't just about money. Again, it was about empowering people to lift themselves out of poverty. And so then Grameen Phone came into the picture and it was this kind of revolution in communication for Bangladesh. And so it was about connecting the unconnected. So they realized that if people in remote areas could access communication services, it could dramatically improve their lives. Um, so they had this kind of one, one of the things they did was this village phone program so they provide. They actually provided loans to rural women who were already clients of Grameen Bank to then buy mobile phones and then offer telecommunication services in their villages. So, because phones at that time were still out of reach for a lot of a lot of people, uh, farmers uh, in in Bangladesh, and so basically converting phones from product to service. And selling it as kind of microtransactions um, enabled people to, to, you know, achieve connectedness at a time in which uh, mobile phones were still a bit too expensive. And so, and then it also was empowering these women to then essentially create these kinds of franchises, micro franchises, you know, so uh, a, a woman in a remote village who never had access to that technology suddenly becomes the hub of communication for her entire village, Right. So it, it was empowering for these women and, of course, transformative for the villages as well. Um, they, you know, as, as phones have lowered in price, this, the, the Grameen phone has, has started, tar, started to think, you know, also differently about its business model. So they, they have this uh, recent kind of initiative called the Connected Cow Initiative, where um, they basically, it's part of a, a smart farming strategy Right. So farmers can attach these devices to their cows and monitor their health and reproductive status. And so the tech enables these farmers to, to manage their livestock better, leading to more productivity and income. So, I mean, it's a it's an interesting story. And it's a, it's also a, I, I think it's a useful story from a social entrepreneurship perspective because it it shows the ways that ecosystems are really important. Right. It's not just it's not just social entrepreneurship is not just about the venture. It's about the, the the kind of ecosystem of of ventures and villages and partnership networks that are really essential for developing the space. And so I think a lot of times it's really easy to talk about entrepreneurship from the perspective of a founder or from the perspective of a venture. But ultimately, I think it's really important to, to, to be thinking about systems more, more broadly when we think about social entrepreneurship, um, I could provide other examples too, but I don't know if, uh, if that, that would be, if, if you want some more examples or. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great example. What I wanted to go to next is, is it harder 
for a social entrepreneur to get their venture off the ground when compared to a more traditional entrepreneurial venture? And the reason for the question is that it, it seems to me that, you know, a lot of these kind of entrepreneurs will get angel investing to start off with, and then they'll move up the hierarchy to venture investing and all, and all those things. So there seems to be an abundance of capital out there hmm. to start the next social media app or, you know, electric car company or whatever it is that people are doing. Um, do social entrepreneurs find it harder to get their things off the ground? Um, is there, is there enough backing in the financial markets in order to help them? You know, in, I would say in increasingly so, but at the same time, uh, you know, these, this, these are high risk assets, right? Um, so in terms of financial markets and I mean, ventures in general are high risk assets. And so the, what's happening globally around capital markets means that, you know, more, more generally this, at this point in time, venture, unless you're, unless you're perhaps an AI company right now, there, there are few, there are few real bright spots in, in capital raising around for ventures. And that, and that's, and that's true for social ventures. But I mean, to your, to your broader question of like, is it, is it different for social ventures? Um, are, are there distinctive barriers that, that social ventures face relative to traditional entrepreneurs? Uh, I mean, so, so yeah, the funding, so unlike traditional, you know, businesses, which focus primarily on profit generation, social enterprises have to balance their social mission and financial sustainability. And so, you know, they're, they're often relying on a mix of grants and donations and revenue from sales. And that mix can, can on the one hand be unpredictable and unstable, right? So the, like making long-term financial planning challenging so that you're having to manage a, a variety of different sources of funding. Um, there's, there's other, there's other barriers, uh, beyond funding. So like, um, uh, measuring social impact, for example. So unlike traditional businesses where success is typically measured in financial terms, social enterprises um, need to quantify their social and environmental impacts. And so this requires developing and implementing, you know, a lot of effective metrics, which can be daunting and resource intensive tasks. Um, And then, um, you know, from the, from a market awareness perspective, that's also a significant challenge. So, you know, um, educating the market about the value and importance of their social and environmental mission can be a steep uphill battle. So like, uh, you know, unlike traditional businesses where marketing might focus mainly on the product or service itself, social enterprises also are having to communicate that kind of broader impact and mission. And, and that's a, it's, it's sometimes a complex message to convey, um, Regulatory hurdles can be a, an issue. Um, so social enterprises often operate in areas that might not have clear regulation or, you know, may face bureaucratic red tape, um, especially if they're innovating in new or untested areas. So uh, that can be a challenge. Um, and then, you know, and, and this is something where I've, I've done some research on, but like, you know, to the extent that social entrepreneurs are, trying to grow and scale their ventures, growth can sometimes have this strange relationship with mission. So as you're trying to expand 
the the reach and impact of what you're doing, um, it can also create tendencies towards what what some have called mission drift. Um, so scaling a social enterprise, trying to maintain the integrity of its mission, it's a deli- delicate balancing act. Um, as they scale, social entrepreneurs have to ensure that their impact is growing proportionately and the quality of their intervention, you know, doesn't diminish. So, so these would be these would be some of the um, the ways that that social entrepreneurs, I think, face you know some different kinds of barriers. I, there there are some efforts in different countries, for example, um, where you know there uh, different governments are trying to create incentives for organizations that are are pushing their organizational forms explicitly in this direction of, of trying to manage multiple bottom lines. Um, but that, but that can be challenging to, to maintain at, uh, you know, within countries. So, because how, how do you, again, how it just, just as it's difficult for entrepreneurs to measure their multiple forms of impact, it's also difficult for, you know, uh, regulators to enforce, um, these kinds of multiple forms of impact. So how, you know, if you're going to create incentives for organizations to become social entrepreneurs, how do you audit that, right? How do you audit the fact that ultimately organizations are, are indeed pursuing these, these, uh, you know, multiple forms of impact, um, such that they receive these tax, tax incentives, for example. Um, so it's, uh, it, it, there, there are there are many different challenges that uh, social innovators face at this point in time. Yeah, this is getting to the crux of what I was hoping to get to in this conversation. So, I'm a strong believer that businesses should be and can be and indeed are a force for good. And there are a lot of problems in the world that, if an organisation mobilised around the problem, I think actually they could get solved faster than if you were relying on a government. Uh, or even a, a non-profit area to to try and solve it. So removing these barriers, for me, feels like a really important thing that governments should be thinking about. By the way, I also know and think that businesses can be a force of bad too. So I'm not saying that it's all perfect, but I'm saying that they could be orientated that way. So if you were advising a government to say, you know, that wanted to bring this type of entrepreneurship into the mainstream, that it was a really big part of capital investment, um, of resource allocation and, and, and so on. What types of things would you be suggesting that they do? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I think, I think there's a, a couple ways that, I mean, of course there's the simple, the simple approaches around creating certain tax, tax incentives. Um, and so there, again, there are, there are certain countries that have, have tried to do that, um, uh, France, um, they they can benefit from, for example, reduced VAT and and you know VAT rates and have some tax exemptions, um, and that extends to kind of various sectors, uh, including employment, social housing, and elderly care. Um, uh, the UK has uh, these specific legal forms for social enterprises, like like the CICs, which can benefit from improved tax treatment. Um, um, you know, uh, Canada is another example. They're, they're, they, they don't currently offer specific tax incentives for social enterprises, but there's ongoing discussion and advocacy for implementing these kinds of measures. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing too here is, um, you know, about 
procurement policies. I mean, this is another another big one. Um, so, I mean, we, we know that countries, uh, governments can can mobilize sectors not not just by way of shifting the measures um, around tax and tax treatment, but but also because government is a huge customer within most economies. And so thinking about the ways that governments can partner with these organizations to help um, to help them scale, to help them uh, overcome some of the liabilities of newness that you know uh, face any and all organizations. So these are some these are some ways. And I, I you know the procurement policy angle is is a, is an interesting one because it allows for you know it, you you um, there are ways of designing it. Um, in a more kind of personalized, customized way, as opposed to broad policy reform. So, you, but you can you can think about specifically the kinds of organizations that you're you're wanting to help scale and engage in those kinds of procurement efforts to, to help mobilize this space. So, those would be the the more obvious obvious, I think, approaches uh, to help kind of um, enhance ac- activities in this sector. And then switching now to the people that want to create a social enterprise. Have you seen any patterns of how people go about it and that tend to be more successful than others that would be useful for people to, to hear and learn? Um, one of the you know, good ways of going about doing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good question. Um, you know, I mean, I think, so I, I, it's interesting cause I, I, I teach and I interact with a lot of entrepreneurs, some of whom some of whom, again, consider themselves to be social entrepreneurs, some of them who never use that term, but in fact are engaging in kinds of social related activities. And, um, and I think we've, we've seen over the last 15 years or so, around the same time that social entrepreneurship has grown, there's been a, a simultaneous growth in conversations around, for example, lean startup, the idea that organization, you know, entrepreneurs should engage in this kind of um, agile, rapid product development efforts and experimentation. Um, in, in some ways, I, I mean, I, I've I've embraced a lot of that in my own teaching as well, and I think that there are some lessons that social entrepreneurs can learn from that. At the same time, I think that there's, um, you know, I think for anyone looking to enter into the realm of social entrepreneurship, my my primary advice is usually slightly different than than you know just rapid experimentation and my primary advice is really you you need to deeply understand the community or cause uh, that you aim to serve and and I think this goes beyond market research it's really about immersing yourself in the community understanding their needs their challenges and aspirations um, this kind of level of understanding is is I think crucial because um, Social entrepreneurship again. It's not just off. It's about. It's not just about offering a product or service. It's about creating meaningful and sustainable change. And so, you know, how is it that social entrepreneurs can really prioritize building relationships and trust? Um, your your stakeholders are not just your customers. They are the individuals and communities whose lives you're aiming to impact. And so, building trust within these communities takes time and gen- genuine engagement. And I think in some ways this comes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, Anand Giridharadas's critiques of this space is because it's, you know, it's it, in some ways it's been, uh, an, you know, there, it's easy to kind of look at, look at this activity and see, oh, again, this is, this is about the global North trying to 
mobilize. It's a, it's another form of colonialism. Here, you know, where we're we're coming in with our entrepreneurial toolkit, trying to reshape reshape uh, you know economic development around the world. And I think um, that's uh, if. It, that 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 is the case if if in fact social entrepreneurs are not deeply engaging in these kinds of relationship building and trust building efforts to, under, to deeply understand the communities that they're trying to impact, and so it's really important to collaborate and form partnerships. Um, social issues are complex and often require you know collective efforts to address effectively. So, building alliances with non governmental organizations, government bodies, other social enterprises. This comes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, the importance of ecosystems, right? Built, it's not just about the venture. Um, so, so it, you know, yes, lean startup experimentation is a tool that can be used in social venturing, but, but ultimately it, it's about much more. It's about that relationship building, the ecosystem development that I think allows social ventures to, to ultimately create the impacts and sustainable impacts that they're looking to achieve. So I just want to go back 20 minutes ago in our conversation and, and ask kind of a very direct question. We, we were talking about open AI. Would you consider that to be a social enterprise in the way that it's behaving? Yeah. So, um, so I, I, um, this, this might be controversial, uh, to say, I, I'm sure there are colleagues of mine that would, um, completely disagree with this statement, but, um, I, I, I believe that there's that it's a misconception that you have to, you, you know, that unless you call yourself a social entrepreneur and spend time in social entrepreneurship related communities, you can't be a social entrepreneur. I think, again, if we take this definition of using commercial market based methods to solve social problems, then then clearly OpenAI and a lot of other companies that we um, that, that we would not typically categorize as a social innovator or social entrepreneur are in fact social entrepreneurs, um, whether they call themselves or not, right? They, they are, they're operating in a distinctive way. They have uh, a distinctive set form of governance. Um, they're, they're thinking differently about the measures and metrics that they use. And so, um, Yes, I mean, I, I, I do believe they are. Now, the question is, um, how, how do we ensure that social entrepreneurs more generally, including OpenAI, are able to, you know, how do we hold them to account to produce those positive impacts that they claim to be trying to pursue? And how do we hold them to account to ensure against the potential liabilities uh, or social costs that the um, that their ventures might create in the world, and again, I think that just because you call yourself a social entrepreneur doesn't make you immune to creating negative impacts in the world, right? Um, so, so in all of these cases, whether it's open AI, or other forms of social innovators, social entrepreneurs, or organizations more generally, our our role as academics, as policymakers, as stakeholders of these ventures is to hold them to hold them accountable to, to creating, creating real value in the world and not just extracting value. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was listening to an interview with Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI a couple of days ago, and he was asked about um, 
how he felt uh, about the fact that nearly his entire organization signed a petition requesting him to rejoin after he was fired. Uh, and, you know, the question was about him being a great CEO. His response was really interesting. And it was, it's not, it wasn't about me. They all joined because there's a mission that we're on, which is to safely deploy general AI to the world for, you know, for good. So the people were worried about the mission was going to stop, not about coming to join me. Yeah. But it, but it is interesting though, because it was a, it, it's a tension between, between Sam Altman in some ways and the, the venture capital investors that are, that are f- funding a lot of the growth and the nonprofit board that has, that, that is really in place to hold in check and keep, and hold, hold the management accountable to that very goal. And so, you know, it, it, yes, it's about the mission, but so is, so, so you know, the nonprofit board was trying to uphold that mission as well when they when they decided to uh, push push him out. So, you know, there it's the the question is can can we, can we truly hold these organizations accountable um, when they are when they're pushed towards this kind of rapid exponential growth uh, through competitive markets and through venture venture financing. Um, these are these are real open questions at the moment, but I think responsible entrepreneurship—that's really where I, th- I I hope this conversation of social entrepreneurship starts to push more towards. Because I see I see questions of responsible entrepreneurship is actually perhaps even more important than the motivational identities of whether or not you're a social entrepreneur or a traditional entrepreneur. This has been a really fascinating conversation i am really appreciative if you've taken the time to do this um is there anything else that you think we should cover or any final comments you want to leave for our listeners uh no that's great i i I really appreciate um uh these the 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 opportunity to speak to you and and your listeners um you know i'll i'll I'll, i guess maybe i'll just leave with this one statement so you know i think the world is kind of full of paradoxes, uh, you know, these kinds of trade-offs and social entrepreneurship is this phenomenon that has at its core a paradox between social and financial goals and impact and our, uh, our default within our minds and sometimes even within society is to try to separate these goals, uh, which we find competing and it allows us to kind of resolve ambiguity that we might feel. But I think these paradoxes can oftentimes be generative uh, for ourselves, for the world around us. And so when you combine social and financial goals, for instance, I think it opens up all kinds of new creative opportunities that you might not have seen before. So uh, thanks again for this opportunity, Ian. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.